Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to the first programme in this special Planet Pod COP26 series, developed in partnership with the COP26 Universities Network and the University of Strathclyde. Over the next fortnight, we will be podcasting every day during this crucial climate summit, bringing our listeners insights, reflections and observations from the conference and hearing from a wide range of voices. We will be in conversation with academics, policymakers, politicians, businesses, artists, NGOs and activists. Our mission is to take the global issues and unpack them at a national and local scale, to get under the skin of COP and seek to understand what is really going on beneath all the public statements and the fanfares. To set us on the right track, I'm delighted to welcome our first guest of the series, Professor Marie-Claire Cordonnier-Seger, who is among many things, Leverhulme Trust Visiting Professor at the University of Cambridge, Senior Director of the Centre for International Sustainable Development Law and a full Professor of International Law at the University of Waterloo, Canada. She's also been a Senior Legal Advisor to the Presidency of COP on several occasions, and also through the UN as an advisor to many countries on implementing the Paris Agreement. She's a prestigious writer and author, having produced 22 books. She speaks six languages and has produced, to date, over 140 papers. Her CV runs to several pages, and I can't possibly do it all justice, but suffice to say, she interestingly works in the intersections of law, policy and governance related to climate change, biodiversity, conservation, economic development and sustainability, with a focus on the interests of future generations and global justice. I have no idea how she's made time to talk to us today, given that she's got all this going on, but I can't think of a better person to help us unpick what COP is all about. So a huge welcome, Mary-Claire, and thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Amanda, and it is a pleasure to join you for this. I think these kinds of podcasts and indeed this kind of outreach is crucial, not just for the global challenge of climate change that we're all trying to address together, but also for people to be able to join in and help. So I really appreciate this effort and I'm so, so pleased to be your inaugural speaker in this series. Thank you so much. And I know that we're going to be catching up with you again later in the conference because you're hosting another day on climate law and governance, having just hosted um, a very successful online conference based at the university. But I wonder if we could just wind back a little because I hate to call you a veteran of COPs, but you're certainly an old hand in the nicest possible sense, having been through the COP process for many, many years now. So can you just Give our listeners a flavour of what what it feels like having seen COPs develop since, I think you said, 91, was it, was your first COP? Yeah, and actually it would only be fair to say, especially for somebody who doesn't sort of, you know, get involved in serial COP um, engagement. Um, You know, in 1991, I would have been uh, just about to enter university. So a student leader of an environmental organisation. And uh, I was invited by my mentor at that time, uh, Maura Strong, who was the Canadian Executive Secretary of the COP, to get involved along with the other young people. And that was actually a very important way to get involved in, in, in climate change action at the international level, one that was an extraordinary opportunity. Um, we hosted a global conference for the youth worldwide in Costa Rica right before the Brazilian 1992 Earth Summit. And at the Earth Summit, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed. And it was by adopting that convention that the United Nations and the world leaders actually created the process that is COP. 
So when we meet as a COP, we are actually implementing the Framework Convention on Climate Change itself. And we're meeting between all of the national authorities to the parties that have signed the convention. The Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement, these are agreements under that Framework Convention that you know, contain the commitments that the countries have made. And if you really need to understand what a COP is, just think of it as the conference of the parties of the countries, that is, that have signed the, 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 the Framework Convention on Climate Change. They're meeting to find out, you know, how's it going? Are you actually implementing your obligations? What more can you do? And in many cases, they're also meeting to try to improve the frameworks that they're working under, the agreements and the sub-agreements and the procedures and the policies that all these countries have come together to implement. So that's why it's not easy. It's being held in the framework of international law, but it's also, it's a regime and it's one that has been built iteratively over the last 26 years and more. You know, the first COP didn't take place until a little bit after the framework convention was signed in Rio in 92. And of course, as you know, also there wasn't a COP last year. So Rio was really the beginning, but it was a it must have been the most extraordinary experience, particularly, uh, you know, as a as a as an undergraduate coming into that international arena and being part of something that felt world changing. And I just wonder how you've carried your enormous enthusiasm through these through these many years over these decades, because actually at that point, I think the world was probably full of hope that we could actually do something. I mean, the very fact that we'd managed to convene this, this summit and people had signed the convention, although I know not all countries signed initially, did they? And it, it must have felt an incredibly hopeful, purposeful moment. But, but there have been moments in the last you know, couple of decades where there's been less hope and things have felt less purposeful. That's very fair. And I would agree that it was a very hopeful and inspiring moment when it felt like the world was coming together in 92 and making a firm commitment. For me, it was a little bit different. I was there having worked so closely with young people from around the world, but especially from the 160 odd countries that are not members of the OECD, that are not classed among the sort of rich developed Northern countries. And so I saw firsthand their exclusion from the process not just the countries, but of course, the youth, the civil society, the indigenous people, the women, all of the voices that were, you know, their words were unsaid at the unsaid, the, the UN Conference on Environment and Development, which was the official name of the, of, the, of the Rio conference. And it helped me to understand how international law is only part of the picture. Now, as a lawyer myself, I'm deeply, deeply committed to justice. And I could see the injustices that still permeated our international system, even manifesting themselves in, in the way the conference had to be hosted in order to be able to include all the heads of state and others who were coming and making their commitments. And one of the things that I think has stayed with me all of those years is that when we signed these conventions, when we made these global agreements, we committed to protect the environment. You know, we committed to, 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 to stop emissions, to, to start the process that would bring them back down from a process that had them skyrocketing. I mean, really, really skyrocketing, even worse than they are now. Mm. But we also committed to help everyone to develop in a very different way, to develop sustainably. And I think actually out of all the broken promises, that might've been the first one to go. So in the last sort of 20, 30 years, yes, 
we've seen incredible efforts, including especially, frankly, led by organizations and others from the UK to protect the environment. But we're still struggling to deliver on that second, quieter, more foundational promise to ensure that everyone can develop, but in a way that doesn't destroy nature, that doesn't cost us the, the very quality of life that development is meant to bring. And, and, and I do think that that is something that we're still working on. And one of the reasons that, for example, you may have heard, we're still struggling to find the operational guidance for Article 6. It's the sustainable development mechanism that is in there, along with the emissions trading and other market and non-market instruments. And, and it's hard to agree because of that second sustainable development commitment that we haven't been as strong on as we needed to be. Mm. A great deal more is there now than ever was before, though. Yeah. So your original question, do we lose hope? Absolutely not. You know, I, I don't think, uh, I think there's a few people much more famous than I who have said it before, but I don't think pessimism is the, is the answer to any of this. You must be an optimist, you know, sort of peace as possible because it's necessary. Yeah, we have to travel, hopefully. We have no choice in that. Can I, I do want to ask you about Article 6, but, but something I, that, that, that you just said there really resonated with me. It's this idea that, that we're in this global effort together um, because we're seeking to have better climate justice in that sense, but 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 actually to make the world a fairer and more just place for for all for all peoples, and it seems to me that that's the bit that we so often, as you say, we so often neglect. And you know, I think particularly in the UK, with the you know a lot of my working life, I'm talking to large corporates, and they're very interested in what they're doing, and they're looking at their clients. But we are talking about the kind of the tip of the of the capitalist iceberg, if you like, you know, those extremely wealthy organisations who can afford to make choices, who can, you know, afford to, 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 to pay a huge amount to offset, who don't seem to have that notion of necessarily fairness and climate justice rooted into their fibre of their of the work that they do. And you could argue, why would they? Because that's not what they exist for. But in, perhaps until we've got that, we are not going to be able to make that transition. Until we value that as highly as we value the you know, the drive down on emissions for a large organization. We won't get that balance, will we? That's exactly it. I mean, I serve on the boards of several companies and also foundations, and I've been for many years a part of structures and international organizations that respond to the needs of these large actors. My theory of change is that just as important as the decision of a large bank not to lend in areas that aren't aligned with the Paris Agreement is the decision of a woman with six kids who's running a tiny solar company, my client in Barbados. And I think if we look at it as each of us trying our best within the means we have, and then we accept and distribute our responsibilities accordingly, we start to get to that framework of justice. We start to get to those ideas of fair play that are still really being negotiated. They're being negotiated every day. And I don't find that to be unusual that we need to negotiate what is fair because we don't all just pop into being a sort of Athena springing from the head of Zeus with a full understanding of everyone else's circumstances. We need to learn those circumstances. We need to come to see that our action today 
to make one small, you know, sort of purchase or one big lending decision might cost another entire city their home and might render an entire country unlivable and cast their citizens into the space of, of, of refugees and climate migrants. And, and those understandings can then help to shape our actions and our purchases and our decisions. We are starting to see that as people come to understand a little bit better the, the road that others walk. They do try, most of them. Most of us are kind, moral individuals who are trying to do our best in this world. They try to, to, to react to that and to be more responsible. But education has a very strong role to play there. And yeah. One of the things that I've been saying for the whole 28-odd years is that you know we still have a gaping chasm in front of us in terms of just the people who are trained and ready to help to implement this new economy, this new society, this new environment that we're moving into. And, and, and if we want to take the Paris Agreement seriously, that capacity chasm, and there's a structure inside Paris, the Paris Committee on Capacity Building, PCCB, that is going to be meeting at our COP, that is there to help to build that capacity, to, to ramp up, scale up, all of the efforts of universities, of bar associations and societies, law societies, of engineering schools, of every single training institution that's out there to do their bit to also shape the people that we need to address this problem. And, and I think that is worthy of hope, just as much as being able to trust that most people, given the opportunity, will try to pick a fair solution above an unfair one. Yeah, I, I think that's that reflects to me the sense that of of what's happening amongst our young people as well. A huge hunger for the chance to do this, a huge hunger for change. Um, you know, and it, it's so often said of you know of of young people, particularly in this country, they say you know that they're not engaged, they're not interested, they just spend all their time online. But 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 my experience of young people is exactly the opposite. They're hugely passionate. They are engaged. They do. They do protest differently, perhaps, from the way that you and I protested. You know, there's there's perhaps a bit less of standing in streets with placards, although the climate strikes, I think, proved that not to necessarily be the case. But but they are engaged in that online community. They're engaged in those conversations and they are passionate about it. Um, my anxiety, I suppose, going into COP is that we consistently fail them. You know, particularly here, we're underinvested in our education system. We're underinvesting in schools. We're, we're, we're not seeing the bigger whole round picture. We're not necessarily looking at education in a holistic way, um, and that we're actually in danger of failing that generation. And in turn, by failing them, we'll fail. We'll fail on our obligations for COP, and we'll fail the planet. I mean, am I being unnecessarily pessimistic? Uh, as a mother, I have to agree with you. And, and one of the hardest things I've ever lived is to see my sons, of whom I am incredibly proud um, as, as young climate strikers, but also as, as hosts and organizers and chairs of the Cambridge Schools Eco Council, standing up in front of um, a university audience presenting on climate change. And when asked by the head of the department that hosted them, what do you want to be when you grow up? They looked at him blankly and then one of them said in a very clear voice, I'm not sure you've understood what we've just told you. What do you mean when we grow up? Are you sure we're going to get a chance to? And the other one, trying to be helpful, said, you know, I would have loved to be a teacher. 
but I think I probably need to try to study harder and be a doctor because so many people are going to be hurt and yeah. they're going to need more doctors. And, and you sort of think of that's their vision. Yeah. Um, you know, and the same kids were down there last Friday at King's Parade in Cambridge holding their vigil because they've missed too much school due to COVID to be able to leave during the school day. So they're all meeting down there with candles after school in the freezing cold. And, and, and you say, all right, you know, each generation finds its own way, discovers its own voice, but we can't fail these kids no. and we can't fail their children who will be our grandchildren or the seven generations after that, that we can even start to reasonably predict for. And I do think that that is the difference maybe now as to when we started in 92, you know, the conferences of the parties to the convention meets every year. We share what we're doing. We evaluate it and realize it's not enough. We are meant to go away, not just inspired, but also with a better understanding of the circumstances of all the others that are in this together with us. As probably everyone listening to this podcast is aware, when carbon and other CO2 or other greenhouse gas emissions go into our atmosphere, they can be generated anywhere and they affect us all equally. But what happens once that impact is felt, whether it's slow onset sea level rise, whether it's wildfires, whether it's our permafrost melting, whether it's our forests and, and grasslands burning, whether it's our coral reefs bleaching and dying, all of these impacts, all of these impacts affect others differently. And mainly because some have the means, as you were saying, Amanda, to adapt to them and to be more resilient. And others are forced to simply cope with the impacts that they're already being made to feel. So I feel just as much concern and sympathy for my colleagues who are Antarctic survey um, uh, scientists who come back with terrified reports of glaciers collapsing into the ocean and tipping points as I do for my friends who live on the Vietnamese coast where the water is already creeping in and undermining their villages that have been there in some cases for millennia. Yeah, yeah. But I'm most frustrated by the economic development projects we put in place for the last two or 300 years that are frankly going to prove to be worthless because they were done in a way that didn't take into account the actual impacts of climate change and the countries still have to pay back their loans for those projects, those failed ports, those inoperable roads, those agricultural projects that are never going to be able to come to fruition. And to me, that's a huge wasted opportunity of, of resources, but also of political will and also of people, people who have built these, these, these development projects thinking they would be good for the, everyone and for their countries and are now discovering that we weren't quite smart enough and careful enough and well-trained enough. We didn't have the capacity to do them properly. And, and we've let ourselves and each other down. Yeah. Is that something that the mechanism of COP can address? Or is that something that actually has to sit with, you know, in a kind of geopolitical sphere when individual governments or, or OECD get together and say, OK, we will write off this debt or we will reinvest there? I mean, has COP got a role to play in rebalancing some of those injustices? Well, I'm going to go against most of my colleagues here, and I'm going to say absolutely the mechanism of a COP helps to address that issue. It's certainly not the only or the most important way of addressing it. 
but without countries coming together once a year, checking on progress, sharing their science, sharing what they've discovered and learned, and making new commitments together, without what we call observer organizations, but are divided into a whole set of constituencies that include business, youth, indigenous peoples, women, research and independent NGOs, environmental groups, and others. You know, without all of those constituencies that are our official observers to the convention and all the other stakeholders who also join these COPs, we wouldn't be able to mobilize the action needed. And so whenever someone says to me, you know, why is everybody participating in this global process? Why are all those hundreds of thousands of people organizing in their own countries and towns and cities? And then, you know, uh, um, maybe a, a couple of um, tens of thousands actually going to the conference. I always say, well, how else will you involve everyone? How else will you engage and inspire everyone? How else will you give them a chance to talk to each other, learn from each other and make new commitments together? How will you build what we scientists and legal scientists call an epistemic community that is committed to the whole, not just their little piece of it, if you don't bring them together? You know, if you don't find a way for them to be able to share the solutions and frankly also share some of their um, failures and their lessons learned so they're not repeated over and over again. You know, it's not in the end a COP that is for the 20 or 40 richest countries and the large final emitters. It, it is a COP that is for the other 160 countries that are normally excluded from this decision making and for the hundreds of thousands, most of whom do not travel, and certainly this year they won't, but are still part of the decision making that leads to either the new initiatives that are launched, the new partnerships that are launched, the new decisions that are made, and, and the new commitments that are made. And, and, and that larger process of bringing the world together is something that I think has a chance of addressing those injustices. Yeah. And it's the, the kind of, if you like, it's the warp and the weft of the conference, isn't it? It's the, it's the informal meetings, it's the fringe events, it's the panel discussions, it's not necessarily all of the hardcore negotiations in the main room that really help to, to, to create and embed that change, isn't it? And to, to make mm. that change reality for people. I mean, it, there's been a lot of talk about this COP, the people who aren't coming, you know, the, the fact that China may not be there, um, you know, Australia making commitments, but with no plan. Are you are you hopeful that the, the 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 big business, you know, the leaders and the big countries will have enough um, energy and enthusiasm and commitment to to set in place some proper um, changes? Because more needs to be done, doesn't it? We're failing on our we're failing on our LDCs. We're failing on our, you know, we're failing we're failing on our, our, our defined contributions, and we're not necessarily doing what we should do. So, are you hopeful that there's enough buy-in from those big emitters? Because I know the small countries are important, but to actually shift the dial a little bit? Well, I'm going to push back a little bit because the large final emitters did hold some of their own processes without the small countries and the island states and the others who would lose everything in the room. And they didn't get very far because the moral imperative and the concern was gone. Okay. So I think together, all of the countries and all of the, what we call parties, and all of the observers and all of the other stakeholders, including those kids in the streets, are actually the only thing we have right now. And so what we need to do in a way, and this is crucial for the COP that is coming up, we need to be able to pay attention to those packages of commitments that over 26 years have been iteratively negotiated time and time again. Those um, contributions, as you say, that countries need to be able to announce but follow through on, and that needs everyone in the room, the scientists, the engineers, the bankers, 
But we especially need to notice that out of the Paris Agreement, you know, Article 2.1, sorry for sounding like a lawyer, is actually the purpose of the Paris Agreement itself. And we talk about making these commitments on mitigation, on reducing our emissions. And there's hundreds of thousands of ways to do that throughout our entire economy globally. We also talk about adaptation and resilience and ensuring that less people and indeed less entire species are lost in the adaptation mm -hmm. process in addressing the impacts. But we promise finance. And there are very few countries in the world that could host a COP where this crucial issue of finance, investment, resources is felt to be in safe hands. The UK, quite frankly, and I recall this from the Marrakesh pre-COP, right before COP22, and I also recall this from some of our meetings in Kyoto and in Buenos Aires, even further back, the UK is seen as a safe pair of hands for that issue of finance and international markets and changing the direction of our world economy. Whether that's a fair set of expectations to put on our current government and on 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 you know, as a as a Canadian, Swiss, and British citizen, our our colleagues in in government whose whose job it is to help to advance this, I do see the asset managers coming forward. I mm -hmm. see the banks coming forward. I see the international financial institutions making commitments on a scale and scope that they've never made before, and that does give me some hope. So yeah. I suppose this is actually just Amanda a really long winded way to say. We don't yet know where all those solutions are going to come from, but we can pretty much guarantee that if nobody's meeting, nobody's talking about it, the media is, you know, not engaging, the young people have no way to channel their concern, their quite justified anger, and also their own hope and their ability to hold us to account, then we certainly won't see a change, will we? No, you know, we have these both sustainable development goals. And I was teaching a class last week. My students said to me, um, you know, Marie Claire, do you think if we solve goal 13, climate change, you know, together with all the Paris Agreement commitments, we'll actually have solved all the other 17 goals as well? And I said to them, I can't guarantee that, my dear. You know, we're talking about energy, we're talking about agriculture, we're talking about poverty, gender, education. I can't guarantee that, but what I can say is that if we don't solve climate change, we're not going to have a hope of solving the others. And 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 maybe the, the, the debate with the scientists in the US tells it best, right? We actually see this question about whether it's even worth designing scenarios above four degrees warning. And, and if we say that we're going to look at those scenarios, we get a pushback now because the scientists tell us What's the point? It's unsurvivable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. Of course, we have to, we need the COP. The COP is an incredibly important part of this process. And I would suggest perhaps the pre and the post COP are almost as important as well, aren't they? The work that gets done later on, the work that gets done in advance and after the meetings and in the follow up and in the months that follow, um, and, and, and all of the kind of intersectionalities of, of groups meeting and taking inspiration from COP to deliver something at a local community level or at a national level is incredibly important. Can I just ask you very briefly, because you are a lawyer, and I know that, that some of our listeners <clears throat> are not and may not know, just if you can explain to us 
what is Article 6 and why is it so important? Because it gets banded about, and I think some people, and I'm probably putting my hand up here as well, don't necessarily understand the full implications of that. I'll give you a short explanation, and then I'm going to introduce you to one of the lawyers in my research institute, the editor of the Climate Law and Carbon Markets Journal, who has been working on this from both a Chilean and a US and a UK perspective, and is really one of the world's experts. So Article 6 lays out the market and non-market mechanisms for implementing the Paris Agreement. In 6.2, we talk about emissions trading. For example, you probably know that the EU is a bubble and that all the emissions that are reduced within the EU go toward a sort of a, a collective commitment that they make as well as as individual countries. And Article 6.4, which talks about a sustainable development mechanism that is actually meant to allow us to channel investment to channel offsets and more into lower cost emission reductions in countries that are willing to host them. And it's that idea that we would be able to reduce more emissions for less cost in those developing countries and least developed countries especially, and therefore still contribute to our global targets on climate change that is motivating the Article 6.4 folk. We had a clean development mechanism we set up under the Kyoto Protocol that does something similar, but it's trying to channel investment into places that we can gain the most emission reductions fastest and at least expense, while also meeting that sustainable development justice commitment that I talked about earlier, that my center has spent 25 years trying to help us keep to. In the Paris Agreement, as you probably know, in COP15 in Copenhagen, even though Barack Obama and the Chinese head of state and others came together and agreed on a framework, they agreed on a triangle of obligations that would help to shape and lay the foundations for the Paris Agreement. They couldn't actually agree on a treaty itself. And part of the COPs between Copenhagen and Paris were about meeting to discuss pieces of that treaty one by one, you know, How will we be able to reforest and change the way land is used in order to um, find nature-based solutions to climate change? And how will we account for them? Was one of those discussions, we call it red plus, (laughs) reforestation, emissions reduction through land degradation. You know, another one was the Warsaw International Mechanism. You know, how do we deal with the loss and damage that Mm. occurs due to climate change and is already happening, especially in the world's least developed countries that feel the impact strongest? And then, of course, you know, another one was how do we how do we enforce compliance? How do we ensure monitoring, reporting, verification? So not just the big baskets of sort of adaptation and resilience and 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 mitigation, you know, reducing emissions, Mm. but also the finance. How do we guarantee that it can actually happen? How do we track that it's happening? How do we change the direction of the world economy? All of those conversations were happening in the COPs. And each time something was agreed, it was provisionally agreed. It wasn't signed off because nothing is agreed until everything is agreed in the mm-hmm. in the framework convention. And it's agreed by consensus. If you want to go together, you got to go slowly. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's got 300 lawyers to throw at the problem. And what we ended up with in Paris, of course, was all those packages coming together and being signed in an extraordinary historical moment where the world was reeling due to terrorist attacks and wanted to show that the international community was capable of coming together and actually doing something to address global problems. So we have the Paris Agreement and we agreed to work out the modalities 
and the operational guidelines later, what some people called the Paris rulebook or yeah. the Katowice rulebook. That rulebook over the years since Paris has been agreed. We've set up the Paris um, Agreement Implementation and Compliance Committee, for example. We've agreed on the rules of most of the reporting, most of the stock take, most of the verification that's meant to happen. We've had hundreds of commitments by thousands and thousands, actually millions and trillions of pounds in terms of finance. But some of those final pieces haven't yet been agreed, and they're among the toughest. I'm going to give you one example of an issue that arises in the discussions on Article 6 and see if you can help me solve it, (laughs) because I think you'll understand right away these aren't easy. Let's say that there's a large country which has a fairly strong voice in international affairs and has a great deal of rainforest. Let's say that that country, if they were compensated for not burning that rainforest, would be able to absorb all the trillions of climate finance that have already been committed and would still be easily, easily able to ask for more just to pay for that foregone development opportunity. If that country says, we won't burn our rainforest, but pay us with your climate finance that you're also trying to invest all over the world to impulse change, you know, to, to, to help to look toward the new economy, If they're not willing to say, we aren't going to register all these credits you owe us, then wouldn't, under fair rules of an operating market system, we have to pay them? And then we wouldn't have any resources left for any other projects at all. And that's just one country. Yeah. So how do you solve that? You can't just say, we're not going to pay you, but we are going to pay everybody else who is, you know, planting more trees. (laughs) (laughs) or not burning their rainforest, Mm -hmm. Um, you have to come up with a complicated set of rules that they agree are fair, where they're still receiving the investment they need to make alternative choices. And at the same time, you know, methane collection, um, you know, carbon capture and storage, fossil fuels, all of these other aspects that also come up in Article 6, when it has to do with changing the markets themselves and changing the direction of our world economy, they're not easy to solve. And it's not enough to just say, oh, you know, China's done nothing on solar power and solar cell technology. They don't deserve to be paid. Oh, Brazil's done nothing to try to protect the Amazon. They don't deserve any compensation for that. All that is is sort of pandering. You know, you're answering one particular country's concerns at the, you know, easy, cheap target of another. We need to be able to come together and make agreements, and we need to know that those agreements can be enforced. And uh, as the president of Brazil told me in Rio Plus Five, personally, Marie Claire, I could write a decree tomorrow saying, let's stop all, all deforestation, all logging. No one would listen to me, and I'm the president of this country. So don't tell me that I just need another law to solve this. No. Uh, we need a lot more than just laws. Yeah, we do. And, and, and that is something that I think we forget sometimes, you know, especially in democracies. We need laws that can be implemented. <laughs> <laughs> so it's no easy task, Marie-Claire. <laughs> You're right. And, and it's why I come back to education and capacity building yeah. and why I would end any conversation about these issues with the hope that we see not just in our students, not just in the youth, but actually in everyone who's willing to gain the capacity 
and start uh, working on these problems, including the heads of law societies and bar associations and continuing legal education processes. Mm. You know, we have, as I've said a few times, probably about maybe, mm, it's not nine anymore, it's probably around 20 climate lawyers in Canada right now, which is one of my countries. And half of them are my former students. <laughs> and, and, and yet, if you look at the size of our criminal bar, or, or our uh, family law bar, you know, there are thousands and thousands of trained people with professional obligations and, and excellent knowledge working on these issues. There are judges, there are um, senior negotiators, there are government officials and justice ministry officials and claims tribunals. Why don't we have that infrastructure there yet on the soft side, on the law and public policy side alone, which is the bit I know, in order to implement the Paris Agreement? You know, that's what needs to be built over the next little while, so that when we see these institutions making commitments, we know they've got the capacity to actually fulfill their commitments, to implement the Paris Agreement. I'm very pro strong commitments, but only if they'll be enforced, because yeah. otherwise, not only are they words in the air, but they are actually threatening our very belief in the societies that have taken on those rules and those promises. And if that breaks down, well, heaven help us. So a call for more climate lawyers. That's what we need. <laughs> Not just lawyers, climate medics, climate engineers, yes. climate everyone. I can do the law for I'll call for the lawyers, but only we'll if anyone else is doing the same. I mean, what we're saying is that, I think what we're saying in essence is that there is no more important problem that any of us should be thinking about. And as your son said, you know, I did, uh, I want to be a teacher, but I'll be a medic because people need to, you know, people will be sick and they need healing. So we need climate in part of all of our lives, first and foremost. So, so, so thank you. I mean, we could talk for hours and I know that we're going to scoop up again later on in over the fortnight, but, but, but I suppose we should close with just, if you can, one single hope for COP, what is the one thing that if you come out in a fortnight's time, that you will feel you've ticked at least one of your many, many boxes. One single hope for COP. One single hope. I know it's an unfair question. I appreciate that. And this is, you know, <laughs> this is the podcast. Oh, no, I'm, it's okay. I'm a lawyer. I can, I can, I can twist things. So I'm <laughs> going to say, here's my one single hope for COP. Over the last 26 years and more, I have seen so many commitments taken on by so many organizations. And it's a special thing when a country hosts a COP. Hundreds of thousands of people who always cared about the issue, but didn't have it front and center, suddenly have it front and center in your country. You're the presidency. You know, we are the hosts. And what I would love to see is that the young people who get involved now as students, the asset managers, the banks, the corporate lawyers, the medics, the engineers, everybody else, I would like to see them take on real commitments and back in 10 or 20 or 30 years to say that they've met them. So I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, I hope we solve Article 6.4, although I do. <laughs> I'm not going to say I hope my research fellows, my institution who are right now serving on all the different government delegations trying to negotiate solutions um, manage to come up with just the right comma and just the right, you know, footnote. I'm going to say I would like to see all of these partnerships and all of these commitments and all of these demands translated into action, first 
by our presidency, by the UK as our hosts, in terms of every single citizen that's involved in the COP. And it's been incredible to see how many hundreds of thousands there are in this country that want to be involved and are trying to help. And I'd like to see everybody else as well who makes a commitment, trying their best to follow through, whether it's small or large, whether it's an entire network of banks, whether it's a company board, or whether it's a young person saying, we're not doing holidays that we are flying to anymore, are we? Um, or our college is going to go meat free, except for Sunday roast, um, <laughs> yeah. which none of, none of us are willing to give up. You know, and, 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 and these sorts of small to large changes are what actually create what I call a creative, courageous dynamic where it makes action easier for everyone. So if I could see the cop mobilize those commitments and that implementation of those commitments on those many, 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 many levels that they're starting to happen, starting with our presidency and our host, starting with us here in the UK, then I'm going to feel like it was worth it by far. Well, that's a fantastic note to end on. And, and I'm hopeful with you too, because I think that there is there is an enthusiasm and a willingness and an understanding and an intellectual engagement in this COP that there hasn't been in the past. And maybe that's because we're hosting it. Maybe it's because it's here in Glasgow, <laughs> but, but maybe it's because the time is right. So a huge thank you to you, Mary Claire. I mean, just been fascinating talking to you and having your perspective and a wonderful way for us to start our COP26 series. We'll hopefully scoop up with you again later in over the climate conference, but, but, but the best of the luck with all the projects that you're working on. And thank you enormously for your time. It's just been a delight. Thank you so much. And Amanda, um, I'd like to see a podcast series a decade yep. from now where you follow back up with as your contribution, Just all of the people who have been interviewed. Try and stop me, Marie-Claire. <laughs> Try and stop me. Try and stop well, I'm me. inviting you to the next few cops and, and we are going to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be joining your podcast in order to see what, what, what has actually happened with those promises that were made. Yeah, well, <laughs> we will be there. Try and keep Planet Pod down. Thank you so much. And thank all you right. to our listeners. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you happen to be in Glasgow, swing by the Green Zone where the university's network stand is and you can pick up a special COP26 Planet Pop postcard to send home or to stick on your wall. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.